You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. It is so good to see y'all. Um, I am happier to see you, obviously. Um, I am just, I've had so many people tell me how rested I look. Um, I'm happier to see you than you are to see me, I can promise you. It's good to be home. We went on a tour of shoe stores of Scandinavia. <laughs> and um, um, we got there to Scandinavia and some of those countries and uh, women that ran shoe stores were running out saying, we've expected you for, for a long time. Welcome, come. I felt that way anyway. Anyway, we had to come home. I was out of money. So it's good to be home. Let me mention a couple of, uh, Patrick uh, Sawyer and myself were down at the emergency room last night with Stacy and Josh Caldwell. Their youngest, Rich, um, uh, evidently had a seizure late yesterday afternoon and uh, was taken there. Please keep, keep him in your prayers. Keep them in your prayers. Uh, there are others. Miss Jamie, uh, whose dad passed away. His funeral was yesterday. Uh, keep her in your prayers. Um, there are a number of others. Kathy Napier uh, had cancer surgery a week and a half ago, something like that. Uh, she came through that really well, uh, is doing well, but keep her. She told me she will see us in January, but we will see. I hope and pray she's healthy enough to do that, to be back here. So there's so many that need our prayer. Uh, and I just ask you in the fellowship to keep, keep them in prayer. Now, two weeks from today, I've got a real good friend that's coming. Uh, her name is June Hunt. Uh, June's mother, uh, Miss H.L. Hunt, was the first funeral I had at First Baptist Dallas. Um, she was married to very famous man, H.L. Hunt. Uh, there's June right there. Um, her dad was uh, unique. He, he was the guy that devised uh, the drilling point uh, that they all use now in drilling for oil and uh, became the first billionaire. But she is a very committed Christian internationally known counselor. She's going to be here and she's going to share at lunch two things. She's going to share on bonding with your child or your teen through boundaries and dealing with depression and anxiety. You say, well, I don't know that I need that. Well, somebody you do know may need it. It's a great time. Lunch is going to be provided. She's going to share that Sunday afternoon. You don't want to miss that. This will be a real benefit to a lot of families. This time of year, depression and anxiety is uh, the highest that we ever see it in the course of a year. Uh, we just buried, uh, over the time we were gone, I buried Debbie's brother. And uh, three days out into the North Sea, I got word that my last sibling, my oldest sister, uh, passed away. And so a lot of people are going through a lot of difficulty right now with, um, with grief and uh, the anxiety and the depression that that brings. So it's a great opportunity for you uh, to at least come and learn how do I handle that with somebody uh, that I love, with somebody that I know, uh, if you're not experiencing it yourself. So 
be sure, make a reservation. Lunch is going to be provided. So there you go. Be here for that. Now, let me get to the Word of God, Romans chapter 12, <coughs> where we've been. Forgive my throat. I preached once this morning fine. It always takes me a little while to get my throat back into preaching form. Anyway, <clears throat> you all know, or at least I would guess that most of you know the name Will Rogers. Uh, if you don't know him, uh, he was an American humorist. He was a movie star, starred in about 70 different movies, uh, started out as a uh, cowboy in uh, rodeo out west, uh, became very famous. In fact, he probably was as famous as, famous as the president in uh, any of the presidents during his lifetime. He was literally America's ambassador at large. He was just one of these figures large in life. He was Cherokee Indian, by the way. He was born on the reservation there in Oklahoma, uh, but hit it big and uh, wrote for thousands. I think he wrote over 4,000 uh, different pieces for newspapers all across the country. People followed him wherever he would go, whatever he would do, they would follow what real Will Rogers. And I tried to think, who is somebody that I could compare him to? And the only one I could think of was Bob Hope. But you got a whole generation that know who Bob Hope is today. Uh, so I've, I've looked, this guy's local. You don't know him now like he's going to be known. Uh, Sean of the South, Sean Dietrich, uh, is kind of like a Will Rogers. He's a humorist. He's funny. Um, he talks about things. He walked into Grover Cleveland. He met with every president during his lifetime. Uh, he walked into Grover Cleveland's office and uh, looked at Grover Cleveland, who was very stoic, very somber, uh, not dramatic at all. And he said, wouldn't you like to hear the latest jokes, uh, political jokes? And Grover Cleveland said, no, I hired them all. <laughs> so um, he was that kind of guy. Now bring him up for this. The one statement that most people have heard that came from Will Rogers is this, I never met a man that I didn't like. I never met, in fact, he said that was to be engraved on his tombstone. I never met a man I didn't like. Now, let me just ask you something. Could you say that? No. <laughs> that comes kind of quick out of a couple of you. Um, <laughs> No, and I would agree. I would have to say the same thing. There's some people that have been so rude, so curt, so short, so, you know, condescending to you. Um, they just run over you and think nothing about it. Uh, and we just say, I just don't like that person. It's, I don't like the way he treats people. I don't like the way he speaks to people. I don't like the way um, he, he, you know, he sees things and then thinks everybody wants to know that this is the way he sees. You know, there are a lot of people in life we've come across that we'd have to say, we're not Will Rogers. We just didn't care for him. Now you just take that up a notch to somebody who is simply mean, mean because they want to be mean, mean because they Something about them just wants to stomp on your life. All of us have known people like that. Um, people that are just mean to us. And they set out for some unknown reason to destroy us in life. All of us have known people like that. Now, when I put out this week that I was going to be back at Valleydale 
and that I would be preaching on how do Christians handle mean people, I got a note from a guy in another state, nobody from here, but in another state who said, I'm going to be listening by the hickey that we, what do you call that thing? Uh, the internet, uh, Zoom or whatever we're on, uh, by the internet. He said, I'm going to believe, he says, but I want you to preach on how do you handle mean Christians? Now, I had to stop and think about that because when I wrote this sermon, and I, man, I've been, worked on this sermon on the plane coming back, and over the last couple of weeks, I've just worked on this. Uh, I was consumed with this in another sermon, but as I looked at that, I, I read it and I thought about it, mean Christians. You know, that's an oxymoron. Do you know that? You say, well, I've known some mean Christians. There should never be a mean Christian. There should never, ever be anybody who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and we just say, that person's just mean. Well, it's because we are people who have been saved by the grace of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and we are to produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, long-suffering, or, or uh, yeah, yeah long-suffering, or, or uh, self-control. That's what Paul tells. We're to be people that display that. We're not to be people who display how mean we can be to somebody. Uh, mean people are a different category, and it should never be said of a Christian, I know a mean Christian. That should be an oxymoron. And Paul's going to come and talk to us about how do we as Christians deal with people that are actually mean people. And you say that, you know, what is a mean person? Well, I'm going to show you that before I even get into the text. So I hope you've got your Bibles open to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to get there, but put your finger there and go with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 16. And I'll give you a biblical picture of a mean person. In fact, I'm going to give you a picture of two mean people. There are two of them in this story. Absalom was mean to his father. He was evil to David. He not only wanted to take the throne of his father David, which he did, he not only wanted to take the kingdom of his father David, he wanted to turn everybody against David, and he wanted to take David's life. He wanted to commit, he wanted to kill his own father, if you can believe something like that. He wanted to put his father to death. And so, when you come to chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, David is fleeing the city of Jerusalem. He's getting out by night. All of his mighty men are with him. Scores of people are going to cross with him. They will go down out of Zion, which is right. Zion is the hill that comes up like this. Mount Moriah is the hill that, that comes down to Zion. David's city was in Zion. And then they built the temple right there on top of Mount Moriah. So David flees out of Zion. He goes down the hillside. He's got to cross the Kidron River. As he crosses the Kidron River, he goes up the Mount of Olives, the same Mount of Olives that Jesus is going to pray on the night before he's crucified. When you get up to the top, Bethany, where Lazarus and Martha and Mary lived, when you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, there's the village Bethany there. When you start down the other side, you're in the Judean wilderness. 
You're in the Judean wilderness. It's barren. It is nothing but dirt, sand. It's sand. It's a desert. It's a wilderness. Uh, And these high, unbelievably high mountains that are out there, and the road from there goes straight down to the lowest place on earth, which is the, the Dead Sea. And so here is David. He comes up out of that, and he is going with all of these people out into the wilderness to escape his own son who wants to kill him. And as he's escaping under the cover of darkness, maybe about the time the sun begins to break and it would come directly up in front of him, about that time, there's a guy that comes out by the name of Shammai. Now listen at this. In 2 Samuel 16, verse 5, when David, King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul. Now his problem was he was a Benjamite Saul was a Benjamite. He wanted somebody from the tribe of Benjamin to be king like Saul and not David who was from the tribe of Judah. So it's politics are involved in this, okay? So he came, he came out. He was of the house of Saul. His name was Shammai, the son of Gera, and he came out cursing continually. This guy just comes out and they hear him and he's just cursing up a blue streak, He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. Then Shammai said when he cursed, get out, get out, you you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom and behold you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. So, I mean, he is just ranting and raving at David, throwing rocks at him, and just kicking dust over there, down off of that ridge, down on David. Then Abishai, who happened to be one of David's mighty men, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. He said, just let me go over there and cut his head off. And the king said, what have I to do with you, O son of Zariah? If he curses and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. And now how much more this Benjamin? In other words, he says, how can anybody add any more injury to me than what's already been done by Absalom? Let him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him. He said, I don't know if God told him to do this or not. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shammai went along on the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed and cast rocks and threw dust at him. Now, I'm going to read to you verse 14. I'm going to give you two things that I want you to see that happens to you if you will not respond back to somebody who is mean to you. Now watch this. There are two things that I could preach the sermon out of this right here. The king and all the people who were with him arrived. In other words, if in life somebody is mean to you and you will leave that to the hand of God, you will get to where God has been directing you all along you'll arrive. Now watch the second thing. The second thing here says he arrived weary, but he refreshed himself 
there. The word refresh means this. Now, I'm gonna, you know, I've told you before, Hebrew is a picturesque language. And so this is the word refreshed. That's it. That's the word right there. It means I, I can breathe again. Have you ever been so full of stress and anxiety? This, this is the way you feel when you, when you have a panic attack. I can't get my breath. I can't, I, can't, I can't breathe. I can't breathe in enough air. I can't get enough oxygen. And I feel like I'm about to have a panic attack. And you get somewhere where you can calm down. And all of a sudden, you can go, oh, thank the Lord. You know, I got a good breath that time. Well, that's the concept. That's the concept of a mean person that will come and will try to choke and squeeze the breath out of you. And if you wait on the Lord, God will bring you to a place where you can catch your breath. Hello? Y'all are out there? (laughs) Now, let me show you something here in the text. I want to show you before I go any further, back in Romans chapter 12, where all of this is coming from, because he's going to talk to us about how a transformed life, a transformed life will treat people who are mean differently. How do you treat mean people? As a Christian, God's Word tells us we don't respond the way the world does. Back in chapter 12 and verse 2, do you remember where Paul says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosis. There is an interchange that is taking place. Something on the inside is changing. Be transformed by the renewing. The way you think about life and the way you think about responding and the way you approach things in life once you come to Jesus Christ, is completely different than the way you did before you were saved. So he says, listen, you be trained. That word, that verb right there, transformed, oversees every single thing that comes in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 of Romans. And so this comes out. We, we first looked at how Um, In this transformation, it affects my relationship with God, my relationship with myself, my relationship with other believers. That's why I say that a mean Christian is an oxymoron. Paul's told us how we treat one another. Listen to what he says right there in chapter 12 and verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. This is how we treat each other. There is no meanness among the people of God. You say, well, I've known somebody that was a mighty mean Christian. You may have known somebody that was a mean backslider or somebody that was just a mean lost person. Just because they sit in church doesn't mean they're saved. Oh, glory. <laughs> just because they've got a Bible doesn't, in their hand doesn't mean they're saved. And so, listen, there's no such thing. Paul tells us how we relate. I've been transformed in my mind, and I can say, I love every one of you here. I've not met a mean person at Valleydale. Now, I have not. I'm not preaching this to you because there's a mean person running around Valleydale. I'm preaching this to you because it's the next passage that I come to in this chapter, and all of us have dealt with people that are mean. 
So what do we do? The transformed mind treats mean people differently. Now, he's going to give you two things here that I want you to see. Number one, the first thing is this, is that the transformed mind resists revenge. Now, look at verse 17. There are two things that Paul is going to say in verse 17, and I want you to catch both of them. Uh, The first thing that he's going to say is this. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's a very uh, strong imperative. Never pay back evil for evil. Now, here's the direct object of that, to anyone. He doesn't say never pay back evil for evil to most people or to some people or to those who are not related to you or to those who are not in your fellowship at church. He doesn't say that. He says the direct object here is to anyone. It's not to be done by any Christian to anybody. Regardless of what they've done to me, how they've treated me, or what they've done to me, I'm never ever to turn around and to do to them, to do evil to them. I'll never, I call it the Fred Sanford uh, uh, principle of life. Uh, you know, one time he said, do to them before they can do it to you. And the other time he said, uh, do, do to them what they did to you. Neither one of those are what Jesus said. Jesus said, you do to others as you would have them do to you. I'm to treat them in the way I want to be treated. I'm not to pay back to somebody evil for evil. That's what he says right here. And so he said, this isn't to be a part of life. And you, but the natural response is opposite that, is it not? In the natural response, when somebody is mean to you, to turn around and be mean to me, if, have you ever heard of a thing called Facebook? Get on Facebook today and just look through a little bit of it, or Twitter, or any kind of social media, and, and you'll see that kind of response. And you're amazed at how Christians will talk to other Christians and how they'll talk to the lost world. Do you remember in that classic scene in Star Wars when Luke was there with the emperor? The emperor was there. I guess he was on that Death Star. And the emperor was there, and he was fighting Darth Vader. Do you all remember that? And, I mean, he's got those uh, lightsabers in there. He and Darth Vader are fighting each other. And from behind Luke, you ever wondered why they called him Luke? I've got some theories about this movie. Um, I did that the whole time we sat there and watched it. And my wife looked at me and she said, can we just watch the movie? Do you have to narrate everything? I think he's named Luke for, for a reason. Anyway, I think they're dressed in what looks like first Christian century row. Anyway, the, the, uh, the, um, the emperor is behind Luke and he says, that's it, boy. Feel the hate rise in you. Let it flow. Listen, let me tell you something. That's exactly what revenge will do if you give it its head. If you let it have its way, somebody has hurt you, wounded you, been mean to you, embarrassed you publicly. They did that to David. Over and over, we're told how all the people were with David, how all the mighty men were there on either side of him. This guy came out and did everything he could to embarrass David publicly. 
to show what was happening to David publicly and to say, God's t- doing this to you. This is why this is happening to you. And, and uh, he, here it is. They've done that to me. And feel the hate rise. Let it flow through you. That's dangerous. Folks, let me tell you something. That is absolutely dangerous to get to a place in your life like that. Um, I think that's why this age, I think that's why this age is really caught up with superheroes. You, have you, do you just notice that? Every week there's another superhero movie coming out. You know why I think that is? I think deep down on the inside of every one of us, we want the good guy to win and beat up the bad guy. Right? I mean, don't you? Um, you know, you've got Bruce Wayne, whose mom and dad are killed by the bad guys in front of him, and he grows up and he becomes Batman <laughs> with all those wonderful toys, you know. And he goes out and he gets the Joker around the neck, and we're just yes, I got to watch football yesterday. Um, I have not seen it from. Almost a month, I have not. And yesterday, North Carolina was playing Clemson. And in the middle of that uh, game, did y'all see that? Everybody should have been watching that. Um, um, uh, the, the guy from North Carolina grabs the guy from Clemson who, who's got the ball, and he picks him up, and he goes, he's over on the Clemson sideline of all play, and he just throws him down on the ground. Well, Dabo and the whole team, they're going nuts over there. This is a technical, this is, you know, this is a personal foul. And they throw a flag on it, and they give them 15 yards. And he says, first personal foul on you, buddy. Uh, there better not be another one. So you get down on through the game, and as Clemson is just beating North Carolina, amen. And, um, and, and uh, now a Clemson, the guy on the Clemson end, he got the, uh, he's got the North Carolina guy who just caught the ball, and he's picked him up, and you can tell he's about to throw him down. And Debbie's over there going, slam him, slam him, you know. (laughs) Y'all need to pray for her. (laughs) Well, he goes to do it, and all of a sudden he stops, and he sets the guy down. (laughs) And, And it's kind of like, you know, do not repay evil for evil. Oh, yeah, I forgot that verse. So I'm gonna set him back down. Well, that's exactly what, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying this. He's saying, don't pay back evil for evil. Don't do that. Now he comes and he says, but respect what is right. Now, let me just stop right here and show you something in the text. Because Paul is using a word play that would be remembered uh, in the minds of these Romans as they read this. Never pay back Kakas is a word for evil. In Greek, the word kakas uh, is evil. Never pay back kakas for kakas to anyone. Respect what is kalos in the sight of all men. Kakas, evil, kalos, good, right. What is uh, the right thing to do? What is the good thing to do? So he uses this play on words so that it would so stand out in their minds that they could hear it. Kakas, kalas. No to kakas, yes to kalas. He says you respect uh, what is right. Now the word respect there, and it's a little, I think it's an odd translation. So let me explain to you what the root of that word is. And the word is proneo. In the Greek, proneo means 
to pr- uh, the process of your mind, the thinking. And it means to be preoccupied thinking about something. So literally, he says, preoccupy your mind with what is the good thing in the sight of all people. He says, you, you think about this. You let this be what your mind thinks on so that when someone treats you in a mean way, in an evil way, your mind has already processed how I will respond when somebody is mean to me. Now, some of y'all are going to go to an office tomorrow. And uh, you're going to go to an office tomorrow morning, and you're going to walk in, and there's somebody there, maybe a superior, maybe somebody that's your supervisor, maybe it's the guy that owns the company, maybe it's just a work associate, but they are somebody that's mean, that's always trying to get you into some kind of trouble, always trying to get you into, into some kind of uh, difficulty. Uh, they want to step on you. They want to climb on you. They want to get to the top by using you. And you're going to have to make up your mind today because you've heard this word. And uh, this word says you need to preoccupy your mind with how I treat him or her in the right kind of way. Now listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's exactly what you find Jesus doing on the cross. Jesus was on the cross, and there Jesus was praying for those who literally were nailing him to the cross. Preoccupy your mind with how you will respond in the right way, the good way, to that person who is treating you with evil intent. Now, let me show you in Scripture when you take your own revenge. Now, I'm not going to turn back to uh, Genesis chapter 34, but you come to Genesis chapter 34. It's it's an unusual chapter. It deals with Dinah. To begin with, Dinah was the only daughter, the only daughter that Jacob had. He had one daughter and 12 boys. Don't you know that poor girl? Bless her heart. Um, she, She had all of these brothers And um, she probably waited on them and cared for them and all of, you know, the way, uh, you know, sisters do for brothers. And um, um, there was a guy that fell in love with her by the name of Shechem. Uh, Shechem fell in love with her, wanted her, took her out on a date, raped her, brought her back home. And he told her, said, I want to marry you. I imagine she looked at him and thought, you know, this is an odd way to express uh, the desire that you want to marry me. So he goes to Jacob and he goes to all these brothers and he says, hey, I'm in love with your daughter. Um, I'm in love with your sister, Dinah, and I want to marry her and uh, Simeon and Levi. Now, Dinah and Simeon and Levi were all children of Leah. They were all three full brothers and sisters uh, or sister, brothers and sister. And so Simeon and Levi just, man, they are furious. They are mad as they can be. There's no way, no way we're going to let our sister marry you uh, unless you become a Jew. Well, okay, man, I'm, I'm so in love with her. I want her. I'm willing to do anything. How do I become a Jew? You got to be circumcised. 
And he said, not only do you have to be circumcised, but every single person in that village that comes under the leadership of your dad has to be circumcised or we can't do any business with you and we wouldn't dare give you our sister. So he went back and they had every man in that place circumcised. And on the third day, when these men were so in pain, they couldn't get up off the bed, Levi and Simeon went in and they killed not only Shechem, but they killed every single man in the village. Every man they put to death. Jacob gets them and he hears what has happened and he looks at Simeon and Levi and he says this, you have made me odious to these people. In other words, what you did stinks and your stink has gotten on me and everybody around here thinks we smell, that we stink. This is the most horrible thing you could possibly do. You take revenge out not only on this guy, but when revenge gets out, what does it do? It goes everywhere. It goes wild. Now, I'm going to take you back to Proverbs, and I want you to listen to Proverbs 17. Proverbs chapter 17, and you read this, the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water. You begin to play and toy with the idea of strife, and it's just going to be like a dam break. What happens when a dam breaks? Water goes everywhere. Everywhere it gets there. So Solomon says, abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. He comes over in chapter 19, and listen to what he says in chapter 19. He comes and he tells them this. He says, a man's discretion, that is a man's thinking, a man's judgment, a man's common sense makes him slow to anger. You don't fly off the handle at everything. You don't get mad at the drop of a hat. You don't get upset about everything that happens. What, what's true of our society today? That right there. People get mad at everything and anything. Why? Because we do not think with the mind of Christ. You're watching, you're literally in our day, Christian, if you're paying any attention to all of this, you're watching a secular pagan world as it has infected the church because I find so many Christians just hopping off at everything. Amen. I mean, just mad about everything. You want to talk about life being miserable? A man's discretion, his good sense, makes him slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook a transgression. I don't have to pay back everybody for everything they do to me. Well, he said this to me. All right, you know, he, he cut me off here. I'm going to get around him, and I'm going to cut him off over there. You know, just all that kind of, he cut in line in front of me. Uh, he's, got, he's got more than 10 items in his grocery store bag, you know. <laughs> And I'm going up there, and I'm going to get him home, you know, kind of deal. The Word of God says we don't behave that way. <laughs> if you don't behave that way today, let me tell you something. You'll look like a Christian. You'll fake the world out if you've not trusted Christ, and you'll let them all think that you're a Christian. But that's exactly the way we're to behave. That's what happens when your mind has been transformed and renewed, and Christ is Lord of your life, and the Holy Spirit guides your actions and words. 
Well, let me get to the second thing. Since all my time is gone and I've gotten through one verse. The second thing, and I'll be quick. He comes now. This is a first class conditional sentence. If then, if possible, so far as it depends on you, then be at peace with all men. Now, let me tell you something. The world even recognizes that. The world knows that to be the truth. Um, back in 1972, Ed Ames, I don't know if any of y'all remember Ed Ames, had a great baritone voice, played Mingo in, in, in uh, Daniel Boone. Uh, Ed Ames recorded a song in 72 that may have been the hit that year. I can't remember, but it was, it was up at the top of the charts. It was a song that was, well, it, it was not sung, it was spoken. And you could hear that re- rich, deep, baritone voice of, um, of Ed Ames. And the poem was Desiderata, written by Max Ehrman. Now, this only became famous after Max was, uh, had died. His wife published it, and a president quoted it, and it became famous. And if, you've not, if I quote some of it, you'll know what I'm talking about. This is what he said. He comes in that song, and he says this. He says, um, you're a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. That sounds like Buddhism. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. That's Hinduism. Therefore, be at peace with God. Whatever you conceive him to be, that's straight out of hell. Go placidly amid the noise and haste. And remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible, without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. That's Paul. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 18. In, in the midst of all this gobbledygook here, you know, go, go out and remember what peace there may be found in silence. You know, kind of deal. And then he says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace. That's what Paul, even those that are humanist understand this is the right way to live, even though we don't know peace in our day. Yet everybody is scrambling. They're marching in the streets around the world for peace. And yet they have no peace. And they go about it in the most bizarre way. We want peace, so let's go out here and destroy everything. Well, he comes and he says, listen, as far as it depends on you, brothers and sisters, you be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Now, this is the second thing I want you to see, and it's this. A transformed mind trusts God to be just. You trust God for everything else. You've trust God for your salvation. I'm going to trust God when I die. My faith, my hope, my everything is put into him And I'm trusting that when I die, he'll take my spirit, my soul to be with him. One day he'll resurrect this old dead body. He'll bring them both together in a resurrected body. And I'll live with him for all of eternity. I can trust him with that, but I can't trust him with a mean boss. Sure you can. Sure you can. That's what he's saying here. Do not pay back evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Leave room. Do you see him there in 
Verse 19, leave room for the wrath of God. That is, let God handle the situation. If you don't leave room for the wrath of God, what does that imply? It implies that if you go and try to handle it, God will say, then you take care of it. How's that working for you? Doesn't work real well. But I'm telling you, it's there in the text. And the text says, leave room. Let God handle it. Because if you don't let him handle it and you're trying to take care of it, it's going to backfire on you. I have always found in these kind of situations that God is far more effective than I am. I've got ways in my mind I want to handle it. None of them are God's ways. And if I'll just back off and say, God, you know what? My way is not your, your way is not my way. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. What I want to do is in the flesh, and it must be wrong because it feels so good. I'm just thinking, man, I could do that. It just would feel so good to do this. Nope, that's got to be the flesh talking. So, God, I'm going to leave it to you. I've left God a number of things God has not taken care of as of yet. But I am trusting God. And there are days I have to get back in, in, in my prayer life and say, God, here's this situation. I'm just bringing it back up. I, I want you to know this hurts deeply. This wounds deeply. But I dare not take the best thing. You know what the best thing you can do is when somebody is mean and hurtful to you, keep your mouth shut. Billy Graham said that. Debbie Brunson says that <laughs> to me quite often. Just be quiet. And she'll then throw in Scripture. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's hard to do. But that's exactly what Paul is telling us to do right here with people that are difficult. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. There are some things better left to God to handle. Now, since my time is gone, and that's a fa I didn't get to go into that part, y'all want to know about the coals of fire on somebody's head, don't you? Well, um, another day. Let me show you how some of this works out in life. You say, well, it just really doesn't work out. Oh, yeah, it really, it really does work out. Tommy Nelson's a good friend of mine. He just announced his retirement. He's a great guy. I love him. Um, um, he, um, he tells the story on a guy. I, I believe the guy. I, I think Tommy said this guy was a member of his church there in, in Texas. He was on his way. He was late to get to a plane. This guy that was a member of his church was late to get on a plane. But he knew he, he had a great seat. He was in the bulkhead section. And uh, he was on, like, I think it must have been an MD-80. You got three seats on this side, two on this side. He was in the aisle seat uh, on the two-seater side. So he was happy. I'm, I've got a great seat. I get on there. He gets on, and he looks down the plane. The plane is packed. There's not another seat except for two seats. One on the three-seater side where there are two big guys, two real healthy guys that are sitting and there's the seat in the middle. And uh, there is one seat by the window next to his seat, but there's a guy sitting in his seat. 
And so he gets on, he said, he said, he looked at the guy, he said, the guy's got on, man, just immaculately dressed. He looks like he's got on one of those Oxford suits. These Oxford suits that come out of London, about $3,000, you know. He's got on a, you know, one of these silk Italian tie, probably a couple of hundred dollars. That. Got on these Italian leather shoes. Uh, he's sitting there with a computer. Got on these, you know, wire-rimmed round glasses. A real yuppie, you know, just sitting there. And uh, he, he walks up to him and he says, sir, I, I'm sorry, but uh, you're sitting in my seat. And the guy said, yeah, I know, but I ain't moving. And he said, he leaned in, he said, excuse me? He said, uh, I'm not getting up and I'm not moving. Because his seat was between the two real healthy guys over here. So he said, I didn't know what to do. So I turned around to the stewardess, to the flight attendant, and I said to her, I said, listen, um, this guy's in my seat and he won't get out. And so she said, Let's, let me come talk to him. So she comes and she gets down to him and she says, listen, this is not your seat. Before we can take off, we've got to get you over in your seat so this man can get in his seat. And the guy said, I told him and I'm telling you, I'm not getting out of this seat. I'm not moving. So the stewardess turned around to the guy and said, listen, this has been a long day. I've been up since 4. We've been flying since 530. Uh, we have made stop after stop after stop. This is the last trip. I'm on my way home. Um, it's three-hour flight. Will you just sit there so we can get the door closed and go? And he said, sure, I'll do it. So he went and he sat between the two big old boys. And uh, he said, as he sat down, he said, you could hear her, this little girl, coming down the, the walkway. Uh, the, just a little girl, just, uh, just jabbering, jabbering, like Daffy Duck, just going off, just going, you know, just caring like on like a, you said like a two-year-old. They let sit in the lap. Two-year-old. So she comes in, she sits down. Uh, the mother comes in, she's holding the child. She sits down in the seat next to Yuppie here. And um, the little girl is just going out. She looks at him and says, oh, you got a computer? My dad's got a computer. Do you work on your computer? My dad works on his computer. My dad has games on his computer. You have games on your computer? I play on my dad's computer. Can I play on your computer? What game do you have on your computer? He said, she just went like that for three hours. And said he would just look over there from time to time and said, this guy's just got his head buried down in his hand with this little girl just constantly, everything, oh, you wear glasses? My daddy wears glasses. Can you see with your glasses? My daddy can't see with his glasses. You know, she's just going on and on and on and on. He says about the time the plane goes into landing mode, they're making their approach. He says everybody on the plane who's heard this little girl, all of, they all of a sudden at one time realized she's not talking. She's not saying anything. And so he says, he, he leans over and he looks over and he sees the little girl and she is as white as a sheet. He said, she's plain sick. She's air sick. And he said, about the time they hit the runway, she erupts like Vesuvius. <laughs> and she said, all over this Oxford suit and the Italian shoes and the computer, and the, and the flight attendant is out there throwing paper towels and everything at him here, and he's trying to clean, and he is furious. He pushes the stewardess away. He's trying to get himself cleaned up. As soon as the door opens, he's like a shot. He's out of there. And the stewardess looks at the other guy, and he says, hey, just, just sit right there until everybody's off. So everybody just unloads off the plane. Everybody gets off the plane. People, and he said, I don't know what she wants. Maybe, maybe she's going to give me a voucher or something for, 
you know, because the guy took my seat. And he says, I'm really glad he took the seat and, um, you know, all of that. And so everybody was off. Even the pilots got off. And he said, as he was standing there, he said, around from the cabin came the stewardess with a bottle of champagne and two glasses. And she walked up to him and said, we are going to toast to the judgment of God. <laughs> now, I wouldn't recommend champagne. You know, grape juice would be fine. I'm, I'm not for the other, but, you know, listen, let me tell you something. God can handle the meanness of somebody in your life. Let's stand and pray about it. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.